Top Shot is a, is a marksmanship competition where we are going through some of the most crazy challenges, right? That, that are, there's just nowhere else in the world, right? Where you can, you know, shoot from a zip line at exploding targets. <laughs> there we are. Another episode of Open Action with me, John McLean, brought to you by Arms Corps Precision. And this episode, I've got a pretty cool guest. This guy, I remember watching him on the History Channel as he was winning season four of Top Shot. Prior to that, pretty interesting, he was a Google app technical support uh, employee. And then he ended up becoming an author for a book called uh, Shoot to Win. And if you haven't figured out who that is yet, then it's Chris Chang. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on, John. It's going to be a, uh, a fun discussion for sure. Yeah, I think so. You know, because like one, it's it's been a while. Like, you know, I, I, I can't like I remember Top Shot coming out and the craze that it had on the nation. Like everybody like I, I almost felt like um, we were almost like about to break through in like the regular you know, regular normal society as being firearms owners and stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, Sandy Hooks happened. But I mean, because Top Shot came out and then that was when Three Gun Nation started building a lot of momentum. It was on the NBC Sports Network and and all that kind of stuff. So um, but that that was like a show that I watched like religiously. And I was it was so cool to watch someone that was like, yeah, you know, I kind of shoot for fun and, and whatnot to, to be able to go all the way because it kind of it kind of does. The way the reason I liked that the most was because it it really proved that like shootings for everybody it doesn't like if you've never shot a gun before it could be one of those things that like you just pick up and you have a natural ability and gift for but you'll never know until you try so I always thought that was just a cool experience but what was um tell everybody that that watched the show or maybe they'll they'll go back and watch it now what was the process to even get onto the show to begin with for you it was uh, a pretty um pretty intense process you know they they have you know tens of thousands of people who it's an open application process so anybody can apply um and there is a, a document that you know it's like a you know 10 page document with a bunch of questions uh asking about your background with firearms um asking if you or your family has been involved in any like historical moments like in U.S. military history or like any like notable like law enforcement uh, events where a firearm like was used, right? There's sort of digging for interesting stories, right? People, you know, Americans who have um, fascinating uh, backgrounds or experiences, you know, right, with firearms. You know, there's a lot of Olympic shooters, right, that come mm. on, to, on to top shots. So they're looking for, you know, the military, the life, the lifelong hunter, the Olympic, you know, shooter, the you know, law enforcement officer, uh, but they're and they're also just looking for regular guys like me who just yeah, just like shoot for fun. Um, but uh, it was a very competitive process, and you know, knowing knowing that, uh, I wanted to make sure that well, one, uh, I wanted to be competitive. I mean, like, I don't I don't compete in something if I don't intend to win it. And in order to win it, especially as a self-taught amateur, I knew I was really far behind the curve, right? And so, you know, the application process was sort of, um, right, it's sort of its own process and its own beast where it's that paper application, it's live interviews, you know, with, with the production, uh, you know, crew and the uh, casting director, 
there's also a shooting competition as part of the audition process, which was uh, very nerve wracking, but a lot of fun. You know, there's like 50, the top 50 of us, you know, got flown to LA and uh, we were at the Burbank, I think it's called the Burbank Rifle or Burbank Revolver Club, something like that. Um, and 50 of us, you know, competed with, um, let's see, I think it was a 1911, uh, M14, uh, M1 Garand, and a Browning Buckmark, right? And so there were four different types of mini, they're not, they weren't top shot challenges, they're really just marksmanship challenges, right? And uh, more like accuracy and, you know, speed challenges. Um, and here's a fun fact, you know, Top Shot, you know, great, great show, obviously. But, you know, it is a TV show, right, at the same time. And so, you know, just because you're a great shooter doesn't make you great for TV, right? So one thing that was interesting is, you know, the um, you know, some of the best shooters in, uh, in, the, in the group, you know, they didn't get cast because mm -hmm. they were boring. Right. They just they just weren't good for for a, a television show. Right? Like it was from what I heard of these interviews, you know, they're like more like the military law enforcement guys where they get asked a question and they would answer with one or two word answers. You know, yes, sir. No, sir. It was a great time, sir. And it's like, you know, so there's got to be it's this mix of, um, you know, of course, like right, personalities, but also talent. Right. And at the end of the day. Top Shot is a, is a marksmanship competition where we are going through some of the most crazy challenges, right? That, that are, there's just nowhere else in the world, right? Where you can, you know, shoot from a zip line at exploding targets or get, you know, for me, like one of my favorite challenges was uh, shooting an M1919 machine gun from the back of a half track vehicle that served in World War II. And they simulated this World War II battlefield with exploding mortars and uh, the targets exploded. And we only had a hundred rounds in this M1919 machine gun to blow up 20 targets. And the vehicle's going at like 30 miles an hour and you know it's, it's bumpy, um, but it's these unique experiences, right? We're shooting period weapons on period vehicles in a simulated, you know, period era and moment that is just quintessential top shot. Um, and what a wonderful experience. You know, it totally changed my life. And, you know, to comment quickly about one thing that you said at the intro here about how top shot, you know, I mean, top shot changed my life in so many great ways. And it brought regular Joes like me into the gun community and gun culture. And it was such a special time, right? 2009 to 2012, um, you know, you just had millions of people watching Top Shot. And it did wonders bringing regular people, right? Regular Americans who, you know, I, I've heard from so many Top Shot fans that they never really enjoyed or were interested in shooting until they saw Top Shot. And that mm -hmm. was, it was a positive experience, right, for the non-gun owner, right, seeing responsible Americans going out and having a really fun time shooting guns. And that was such a positive imprint, right, on, on our country's psyche and, and, and uh, approach to, to firearms. And we all know, you know, now that they're, now Top Shot ran for five seasons, you know, what a great run. But since it stopped, right, and you know, Three Gun Nation also, right, it stopped, and there's just really no good, high-quality, you know, firearms, you know, competitions 
uh, on, you know, programming on TV. And now it's all dominated by mass shootings, by criminals, right, doing bad things with guns. And, and we're just lacking these more, you know, p- more positive examples of Americans, you know, using firearms for, for fun, for self-defense and in a responsible and safe way. So um, my hope, my, my, my fantasy is that one day Top Shot or something like Top Shot will come back. But in the meantime, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's um, I don't know, something in the past for the time being. Yeah, well, you know, I think, see, I think the reason why it was it was so entertaining to watch. Like, Three Get Nation, don't get me wrong. It was entertaining for me to watch, but it was also because, like, I knew practically everyone that was on the show. So it was funny for me to, like, watch them and listen to them do their interviews because I was like, bro, awkward much? You know, like, I could tell them as they were sitting next to me or whatnot. Um, and, and what they kind of sort of had right was the options. But, like, from a shooter, I understood what was going on. From someone that never knew what was going on in a competition, you know, even when I show videos at USPSA matches and people are like, are you are you hitting the targets? I'm like, well, yeah, they're cardboard. The bullets are going right through them, right? Like they're just seeing the bullets hit the dirt. And Three Gun Nation kind of did this thing though, where they tried to incorporate clay and steel as much as they could, and especially in the later times when I was on the show, um, where it was all like reactive targets, steel targets, clays and stuff, because visually, it's either a hit or a miss. Like you know instantaneously if that shooter hit the the target because it either blew up or it fell over, or you heard a ding, or something like that. And I think that was what Top Shot got so right, was that they made the shooting sports fun to watch because of how reactive everything was. Like, it was an instantaneous no. Nope, it didn't blow up, so they didn't hit it. And then when it did hit, it blew up. And they did, they even did, like, the slow-motion video, which I always thought was really cool, and all that kind of stuff with those targets. So I think visually, and audit- like from an audible level, too... That was one of the ways that they got the American consumer to sit down on the couch and watch the show and consume it was because that entertainment side of it was like, absolutely. I didn't, did they, did they hit it or not? Did they hit it? It's like, Oh yeah, they hit it. You know? So yeah, the, the cinematography and just the immersiveness, right. That you felt as a viewer, you felt you're with me, right. And with all the shooters in the action and you know, one of my one of my career goals is to somehow again like revive a top shot esque kind of competition, but but really like what I think about is more about like the major leagues, right? What is our ma- so currently our major league sort of shooting you know sports sort of revolves around the Olympics, right? Olympic shooting with like trap and ski, double trap. Um, and, and biathlon kind of, kind of activities, right? But those, those only happen every four years. Um, and we don't have the equivalent of Major League Baseball, right? Or the NFL or the NHL or the NBA. So, you know, the fun part about the shooting sports is, I mean, as you know, there's so many different disciplines. But that's a, that, that, that's a good thing and a bad thing when we're talking about mass, except like sort of mass appeal, right? Broad appeal. Like what is, a shooting sport that's going to fill a stadium full of 20,000 people, right? Like, I don't even know if we have that sport right now, right? What is that competition? I think it, it could have been three gun, right? I think yeah, three gun nation was, was onto something and uh, a lot of great things that, uh, you know, were going on with three gun nation programming. Um, but yeah, it's, um, right. What, what is, what is our sort of standard shooting sport that, 
can provide not just a not just a you know a program platform, but but a, just a competition league, right? So hmm. if you are seven years old, right, instead of just choosing between little league and you know you know pee wee football and other you know sort of quote standard sports, I would love for there eventually to be you know some sort of junior shooting you know option that eventually right you shoot in junior high you shoot in high school you shoot on a college team and then you could make it to the big leagues right whatever that looks like for for our shooting sports so that's yeah that, that's something that i've been i've been noodling about a little bit and part of this is technology right mm. so if we think about baseball and if we think about golf so maybe golf's like the the better example here Right, golf. There's a um, uh, an analogy here. Right, bullets are obviously very small. Right, very hard for cameras to track. And golf used to be a very boring sport to watch until the camera technology caught up, and these cameras, right, were able to track balls getting hit off of the tee, right, and literally being able to track these balls like coming off the tee, flying through the air, and then right landing wherever they land. And if you think about you know, football, actually football is maybe a better example. Like there's lots of technology, right? That if you look at a, an NFL game today versus like 20 years ago, right? I mean, it's like all the digital overlays, you know, the, the tracking of the ball, like all, even like the, the yellow, you know, first down line, right? That those are, these are very like simple technology, um, you know, innovations that we need something, I think, like that in the shooting sports, especially if we're ever going to be able to broadcast the stuff live. Um, reactive targets, I mean, critical, right? We've got to have, we've got to have reactive targets. We've got to have shooters moving, targets moving, but right, there also just needs to be a standard sports template, right? It's like baseball, football, it's like, it's all the same, right? It's all, right. it's always the same game. That's where trap and skeet, right? Have a leg up on three gun, because three gun, right? It's like, you never shoot the same stage more than once, which it's cool, but probably maybe not great for a standardized, right, televised shooting sport. So um, those are some of my thoughts, though. I think, you know, the, the, the technology will, I think, eventually help solve for some of this, but I think we just sort of need to create a new shooting sport, right? That is sort of, it's got to become like the one sort of universal sport that, that the general public will come to learn and love. Like that's, that's my fantasy. That's one of my dreams. Yeah, shooting is is a difficult thing to try and figure out how to get into the mainstream media or into the mainstream world for a couple of reasons. One is, and the biggest reason, which is something that I've recently started getting really into, was um, with with suppressors. I realized how much more enjoyable shooting is, not just as a shooter, but also being around. Like when I when I'm talking to people or when I'm instructing them handing them my rifle that has a suppressor on it makes it so much easier for me to communicate and all that kind of stuff. And from a, a third person party, like, you know, most people that come to the range to watch you shoot, you know, whether or not it's a friend or a family member or something like that, like they have to have eye and ear protection because of ricochets and all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, it's very hard to encourage, you know, thousands of people to come out here and risk getting ricocheted and all that kind of stuff. Not that it happens very often, but it does happen. Right. Um, <clears throat> But like to to spend all day like in in the heat and out in the sun wearing ear protection and eye protection and lenses fogging up when you start getting excited or whatever stuff like that it's like eh, I I know like if you if you told me like hey do you want to come out and stand around in the desert for four hours and, and watch a whole bunch of people shoot I'd be like 
well, can I drink? <laughs> you know, like, and then it was like, well, do you want to? Like, it's 110 degrees. Like, well, I, I need to do something to make me happy because everything you just described is, um, first of all, I'm watching people shoot. I'm not shooting. Secondly, it's hot as hell. Third, I have to have mm-hmm. eye protection, ear protection the entire time. Like, that kind of sucks, right? So it's not necessarily a super enjoyable experience. But, like, something I, I found that could be a, a good uh spectator sport that, that incorporates firearms and maybe I'd like to see gain a little bit more traction. This is because a couple of my friends when I worked in the EMS world um did this was the mounted shooting. Because it's it's so cowboyish. Like, you know, it's the single action revolvers, but like they shoot in a stadium. So there are people that are sitting yeah. around the arena mm. that can watch. Um, but they're only shooting blanks. They have to pop the balloons while they're on horseback. And like that visually is just a very cool like we said, like it's a reactive target. You know whether or not they hit the target or not. And then it's exciting in the fact that like you, you've got a timer, you've got this person that's also riding a horse and having to draw pistols and and then put one away and grab the other one and stuff. So like visually, that's kind of a cool sport. Um, but the second thing that I, I feel is our our biggest um, hurdle to overcome is mainstream sponsors. I always mm-hmm. find it so comical that you know Red Bull will they've got an F one team, so they. They will talk about drive. You know, they're they're okay with supporting a, two drivers that have their logo on them, driving 210 miles an hour, and then taking turns at 120 miles an hour, and then potentially sliding, going into walls, flipping their cars, and all that kind of stuff. That's okay. Then they've got some of the most extreme sports, like the um, the Red Bull Air Races. Okay, so now you got a guy flying an airplane, going 10 Gs, making these <laughs> turns. You know, over water and all that kind of stuff, and could potentially black out. No, nope, that that's perfectly fine. It's dangerous, but it's fine. Um, there was one I can't remember the name of it, but basically, it's like a three day event where these BMX riders get to go up on a mountain, and they just tell them like, okay, from from this marker to this marker, that's your area that you can ride. So these guys go up there and they build their own little path that they're going to ride, and they're doing tricks and stuff while they're making these like forty and fifty yard jump gaps over a mountain with a bunch of rocks and stuff like that. That's okay. But then you go like, hey, Red Bull, would you like to sponsor an event where, you know, there's some firearms, but like we haven't really had, we haven't had any serious like deaths or serious injuries or stuff like that that have really been associated with our sport. Um, you know, everyone's very respectful and very, very, we're very safety conscious and all that kind of, no, no, I don't want anything to do with that. I'll, I'll stick with the super fast cars, the super fast planes and the daredevils, you know, flipping around mountains. But to get, a mainstream brand at well and multiple ones right because the the last thing that i find is is going on is that we're we're kind of cannibalizing ourselves in that you know i remember when when i was getting into three gun there were like 12 or 13 matches a year those were the those were the big 12 or 13 matches like you just they were on the calendars and those were the matches that everyone went to and all that kind of stuff right so when you've got, let's just say, 80 companies that are sponsoring these 13 matches, there's a pretty good spread of, of prizes and stuff for everyone, money and you know support. Well, then now all of a sudden next year, instead of only being 13 matches, there was 28, but there's still only 80 sponsors. And the next year after that, there were 52 and still yeah, only 80 oof. sponsors. So yeah. it was like, and everyone said, oh, we got the next greatest match, and it sold out, and it did this, and it did that. So it was kind of like, well, you know, and, and that's why, like, I always, I always felt like um, prize tables are cool when you're, when you're up and coming. And they're, they're a good way for me to, like, 
you know, when you get to the higher levels, yeah, obviously you walk the price table, you take a gun certificate or something like that off the table. We we're, we normally turn around and sell them, not because you know, like we just spent two grand to win a four hundred dollar pistol. We got to recruit something back, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yep. But like at the same time, I always felt like if you like when, when I was when I was a, a lower class shooter, it was kind of fun to walk the prize table at two hundred and twentieth place. But it, you, you almost feel like, okay, well, maybe it would have been better off if, like, you know, maybe the top 50 people got prizes and then everyone else, like, you know, you, you, you hope you had a good time and hope you enjoyed the stages and all that kind of stuff. Because, you know, I went golfing, I don't know, a week or two ago. And when I got done playing golf, I didn't walk into the clubhouse and say, hey, where's my free sleeve of balls and, and a hot dog? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I paid my yeah. money, I went and played 18 holes, and then I left because that yeah. was the experience. There's almost almost a um, kind of like participation trophy expectation that was set by with three gun you know prize tables, which you know I mean on the one hand like you said I mean yeah it's like it can be two thousand dollars right in a weekend right between you know uh, airfare or gas uh, lodging all the ammo and food and so um, you know it's 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 unfortunately not a cheap sport. And yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother, you know, that's a whole nother thread, but yeah, the prize table piece, it's like, you know, you know, what you're, what, what I agree with you, like where you're getting at is like, that's just like not a sustainable model, right? Yeah. Where everybody gets something from the sponsor's perspective. It's like, Hey, yeah, maybe only the top, yeah, 10% or whatever, whatever, whatever. So make it just the best, right? The sort of the, the top people win because then it can become a career for people. Exactly. Right. And that's, that's what's, that's a, you know, right. You and I, right. We were on the professional three gun circuit and it's like, I did it for four years. I had a ton of fun. I had an incredible amount of fun, but I knew going into this, I'm like, look, all I wanted to ever win was top shot. That's it. Like, that's all I ever wanted to win. I don't care if I won Rocky Mountain. I don't care if I won superstition. I don't, you know, it was like, I was there just to have a good time. And right, there just, there just isn't enough prize money. Right. Like, it's like, of course, winning a gun is amazing, a lot of fun, but in order to make this a viable, sustainable career, people need to win money, right? Because that's that's what's going to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you know, it's like, well, cash only gets paid out of what, the top three, usually top three slots, like maybe more if, if you're lucky, but like, you know, and then of course, like only the top, you know, 10 shooters right, are the best of the best of us really have, you know, kind of a, a chance, right, at placing in the money. So, like, you're right, this three-gun as a, as a career is incredibly hard. I mean, right, and, and so, like, that, I think, is just, that's another kind of challenge and, and problem that we need to solve if we ever want, you know, three-gun to become, uh, you know, a long-term sustainable, um, you know, sport for our industry. Well, in reality, it's impossible, like, because um... – you know, we, we talk about, okay, so maybe it's $2,000 to go to a match. But, like, me personally, I'm getting ready to go to Multigun Nationals here in, like, the next week and a half, right? So I had my match fee. I was around, like, 300 bucks or something like that. I got my hotel room, which came out to, like, $1,100, $1,200 for the entire time I'm there. Um, I'm driving, so I just got to pay for gas on the way up and gas on the way back. Um, but that doesn't include, like, that $2,000 just to go to the match does not include the fact that over the past month, I've shot three thousand rounds of nine millimeter, two thousand rounds of two two three, 
250 rounds of shotgun shells plus another 20 slugs and all the time and energy and effort that I put in at the range and all that kind of stuff. So even though like the the price tag only looks like 2000, I'm actually probably closer to like four or 5,000 just preparing for yeah. the match. And then that doesn't include the fact that it's not like I just woke up one day and said, yeah, I'm going to go shoot multi-gun national and started training. I've been right. doing this for, you know, like 12 years. So yeah. like now we're, we're multiplying that by every match that I've gone to and stuff. So there's so much time and money and, and energy invested um, that it, it's, yeah, it's impossible to make three gun a career or make shooting a career Unless you work for a company that allows you to do it. So I work for Arms Corps and Rock Island Army. Great job. And I love, I'll tell you this, like, I love my job so much that like the last couple of years, I've my, all of my PTO has been cashed out back to me because I never felt the need to take a vacation. Cause every time I got to go to a match while I was there yeah. representing the company awesome, and shooting, man. that was my way of, you know, venting and relaxing and just having fun. Yeah. So when I came back and it was like Monday morning, I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to get back to work. Like I had a good weekend. I had fun. Like, let's do it. You know? So, um, but like Tiger Woods didn't leave the golf course and then go to Nike to start working at the office afterwards. Like on Monday, he went to the driving range and then the shipping range and the putting, putt. you know, that was his yeah, job he, was to play golf. Yeah. It wasn't to yeah. be a Nike employee. <laughs> so, so that's that's kind of like what I consider a professional shooter, a professional, Athlete, yeah. you know, like I, I think very closely there's a few people that have accomplished it. One is AMU. If you're on AMU, your job is to shoot like, yes, yeah. you are a soldier. And if they need you, they can deploy you and all kinds of stuff. But for the most part, their job is to shoot and win matches. That's what they get paid for. The second person that has now stepped up. Uh, well, it, uh, second, let's go with Jerry Michalek because that guy's yeah, literally I mean, been, yeah. <laughs> you know, like he, he, I think he probably helped build and develop guns, not because it was necessarily a job, but probably because he was like, well, I'm doing it anyway. I'm always trying to find new ways to improve things. So let's just, you know, make this a project, which is, you know, that, that whole thing of like, well, if you actually love what you do, then you'll never work a day in your life kind of thing. Um, so Jerry was, was one guy that I think was able to kind of make shooting the way he, he, pays his bills and stuff and then the the new breed of people are, are like uh max michelle and nils nils jonas and stuff like that. like they their job like nils i remember when he used to work at a gun club and now he doesn't work at a gun club he literally yeah. goes to the range trains shoots occasionally will go and do trade shows and events and stuff like that for canic but for the most part his job is to fly around or drive around from match to match and win with a canic you know, so like those are the people that I consider the professional shooters. I'm not a professional shooter. I'm a sponsored shooter that works in the gun industry. So like yeah. I work for yeah. you know, my major sponsor, but I'm not a professional by any means necessary. But so, yeah, it's and it's like I can't imagine pulling off any of these things without the support from my. Uh, no, Siri, mind your business. <laughs> what a nosy bitch, right? Boy, she's Jeez. listening. She, she probably gonna have some opinions on all of this, <laughs> right? That's the that's the NSA be like, hold on, can you repeat that last part? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, Hot so damn. like that that's that's one thing for me that like I think from the shooting sports perspective, like uh, it would be awesome to to see it make a more mainstream hit. But um, I, I just, and especially with all the politics, because like, even if we were able to come up with some sort of foundation or what, I mean, and even from a hunter standpoint now, like 
if you want to have a show on TV, you have to pay to have your show put on TV. It's not someone paying you to have your show yeah, on the show, right? That's just not so you got to make your money either. through sponsorships and all that kind of stuff, which again brings us back to the mainstream media. Like, how do you get uh, beer companies, tobacco companies, like all these companies that, you know, are the ones that spend millions of dollars on the Super Bowl to have ads and stuff? It's like, yeah, how, and how in my mind, get- some. In my mind, a lot like this is a little bit of a if if we build it, they will come right. And it's it's I think the pressure the pressure point and the leverage is right. If if there's a, a if we can create a viable sustainable spectator sport right where people again want to go to a stadium or a place right where they can sit, they can order beer, they can order food, and they can be an, an engrossed and engaged spectator. Right. If you get 10,000 people into a stadium or, or whatever. Right. And, and that's where the advertising dollars right, can come into play because once there's eyeballs, right, that's what advertisers are looking for. Right. They want to know, Hey, like, do you have eyeballs that are, you know, are literally going to see our ads? So, you know, um, and, and, and this is where the culture changes. Right. I and mean, that's really like another key point, right. To your, to your comments about advertising, a lot of mainstream advertisers, right, probably don't want to touch anything to do with a gun because of all the, you know, the PR, the, the politics and stuff. But if there's a critical mass of Americans who want to see, you know, sh- professional shooters, right, competing in competitions, and there's a shooting league and it's televised and it's, if it becomes this whole, right, professional league, then advertisers, I think, are more likely to come on board. So because of the, if we change the culture too, right, people um, might hopefully over time right, continue to be less afraid of regular law-abiding citizens owning firearms. And this is, this is, a, this is a hearts and minds play, right? Mm. It's going to take, take decades. Uh, you know, we've obviously come a long way, but um, you know, the past decade, post-Sandy Hook, has been brutal, right? It has been, yeah. it, it's been a, it's been a nonstop battle, you know, not just for our second amendment rights, but, but to just simply, Exist. what's the phrase? What, what, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, yeah, just to like justify our existence. I felt that was a little too grandiose, but yeah, it's sort of like, or, or just to like normalize gun ownership, right? That when, when I live in San Francisco, right? And so, you know, when, when people, you know, learned that I, uh, right, that I was a top shot champion, right, that I own lots of guns, you know, I see myself as an ambassador, right, to make a good example, right, for the rest of us in, in the gun community to just, to just say, look, like, I'm a regular guy, right? I, I, I have guns for home defense, for self-defense, and for fun. The vast majority of the time, I'm using guns for fun, right? And they're right. very safe if you, right, are trained, Um and, and that is a fun and a joy that I want to share, right, with as many people as possible. And and so, um, right, we we all have the ability to make a difference in this regard, right? And it's by simply bringing new people to the range, being great positive examples, right, and ambassadors, right, of of, of freedom and gun rights, and just showing people that look like all these assholes out there that are killing people with guns, like that's not us, right? Like those are like, those are like just totally different. Like, like I'm not associated with them. Like, I don't care if they, you know, they own an AR-15 and I own an AR-15. It's like, 
dude, if, if, if somebody gets like, if they're a drunk driver and they're driving a Ford and I own a Ford, it's like, I have nothing to do with a drunk driver. Right. I don't, I don't condone drunk driving. Like I'm, but, but we, we, if we don't push back, right. If gunners, if we don't push back against these false associations, right. That, that people are making with us law abiding gun owners with criminals, right. Like we need to push back into some, no, like this is, we have nothing to do with these criminals. And that for me is, um, I know it can be very difficult, right, for for gun owners to stand up for ourselves. I mean, that's a, that's a big part of what this is. And um, when someone's talking negatively about firearms, this can sometimes look like you speaking up. Be like, hey, I'm a gun owner, right, and trying to positively engage in a, in a conversation. And, all right, sometimes those conversations can be fruitful and sometimes they're terrible, right? And that's a sort of... The, the thick and the thin of it all. But um, I think the worst thing, though, is we just can't be silent, right? We have to we have to find certain avenues to continually speak up and, and again, push back against this, 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 this constant anti-gun um, rhetoric that demonizes you and me and millions of other law-abiding Americans. It's, it, it's just, it's, it's unfair, it's unjust. And again, we have to use our voices and speak up and speak against it. Well, and, you know, the the very frustrating part about this is that no matter how much we speak up, uh, a lot of stuff, like unless it's a face to face interaction, we can be censored. Like, I know for a fact that, like, my YouTube channel, my Instagram pages, my Facebook pages and all kind of stuff are. um, boy, We're just going to call it shadow banning. Shadow banning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're basically like refusing to show my any anything that i put out and the, the, it's it's funny because i try and throw the algorithm off all the time like anyone that watches my youtube channel and like all the shorts that i post like i do a lot of firearm stuff but then i'll randomly throw in just like these random funny comical things because i'm trying to show like okay this is a gun this is a gun okay now this is just me being stupid this is about comedy this is about you know being a smart ass or whatever and then here's another gun here's another gun but, like, I do see a difference. There's some of my reels where, like, I'll get, you know, five, six, seven thousand views in 24 hours. And then another reel that is like, oh, yeah, you got 34 views in the last month. And it's like, okay, that one was a gun related. This one was me yeah. talking about, you know, uh, uh, some sort of stupid Star Wars theme or something like that, right? So, or some amazing pair of pants that you just bought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sporting. Right, why I'm wearing them. But, um, <laughs> You know, and it, it becomes like this this frustrating thing too, because the the other thing that we're battling, like it's it's surprising how gullible some people are, or how how much they refuse to look at data and accept what is truth and not. Because, like you know, we we've all we as a gun owner, I, I think any gun owner you talk to, we all understand one thing, and that's. California crime rate is insane. Chicago crime rate is insane. And New York crime rate is insane. And they are also three of the most heavily uh, suppressed states and cities for firearms owners. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's just like, and yet there's still so many crimes that are committed by firearms. So you're like, well, you, you, you sure have done a lot of banning but it's really not doing anything because Chicago is still one of like the deadliest cities to go to for gun related yeah. crimes and other other crimes, too. But like you made guns illegal. So how is it that gun crimes are still happening? You know, it's the same reason why 
cocaine and heroin are illegal. And yet there are still people that overdose on both of those on a regular basis. Drunk driving is illegal, but there's still so many DUIs out there, you know. And when, when someone drives a car through a crowd of people, they shun the person that was driving the car. They were an evil person. They were they're just sick in the head. I can't believe anyone would do that, right? Someone takes a baseball bat and starts smashing people's heads in. That guy's a sicko. Like, what? No one's banning baseball. No one's banning your Cadillac right. from going 200 miles an hour. But as soon as a gun is involved, all of a sudden, and it's funny, we, we see it in all our articles, right? Like, an AR-15 fully semi-automatic was used, <laughs> right? And you're like, okay, first of all, that's a Keltec. That's not even an <laughs> AR-15. Second of all... It, you're right. It is fully semi-auto because it can't do anything other than be semi-auto. So I guess technically you're right in a very dumb way. You know, it's like the clickbait and the, you know, the just the amount of manipulation, as we've said, is, is just so upsetting. And that's why you can't can't even have a conversation with some people because like they've just got their their four. There are four lines of dialogue that they want to cover, right? Well, you got to do it for the kids. It's, uh, you stop the mass killings. Your, your kids are not as important as your gun rights, apparently, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And you're just kind of like, man, go pull a gun out or go pull a knife out at a bank and see what happens. A guy with a gun's going to show up and put you down, right? Because money is important, which is why they have armed guards there, typically. Why is it we don't have armed guards? Like, I, I, and I'll say this: in Vegas, when I went to high school, we had armed police officers. Yeah, we had two yeah. guys that were stationed at our school. It's not that they had three different schools that they had to drive around to throughout the day. We had two officers and, and eventually a third. Their only job was to cruise the halls. They rode their bicycles and they just patrolled the entire school the yeah, entire time. Sammy, I went to public school in Southern California and we had a Orange County Sheriff's deputy at our high school all the time. And, uh, it's, it's, um, yeah. Oh, we can go in so many different directions. I know, right? It's, um, it's, um, as a technologist, you know, so I, I, my day job, you know, has been here in the Silicon Valley. And as, as much of a te- pro-technologist as I am, you know, social media has really reduced our ability to have civil conversations, right, especially on topics where we disagree. And, you know, the algorithms that we see, right, shadow banning and, and also just online platforms and discussions generally do not lend themselves to civil, respectful, and nuanced conversations, which Be- because is- no one is right there in front of you to punch you in your face when you say something about their mother. But yeah, online, it, you can sit there and type all you, you said, want about yeah, their mother. All, all these keyword <laughs> commandos, exactly, you mouth off. And of course, hey, like it doesn't feel good to get insulted online. But of course, hey, whatever. It's just, you know, internet people. But um you know, I, I am a little heartened by uh, some developments in terms of, you know, younger generations are not spending as much time on uh, certain social media platforms. And I think I even saw some, some data a few years ago that I think it was Gen Z that is, is spending less time like online, something like that. Now, if that's the case, right, there are certain pockets of, of um, I mean, you know, across all generations of uh, digital detox right? Mm. Less screen time and getting outside or doing 
offline things. And for me, like that is a key part of getting us back to a civil place, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have to actually talk to people in person, look them in the eye, like, right? There's just a very different dynamic talking to somebody in person than online, right? It's like, you know, the online, it's just... It, I, I just don't consider it to be real life in so many ways, right? If you're, you're having an online discussion, it's like, you know, it just gets lost in the ether in a very different way than than an in-person conversation happens. Um, so I, I hope more people, I mean, I, I am trying to digital detox as well, right? Less screen time. I'm uh, trying to read more physical books and when I get a physical newspaper, I actually like love it. Just having, you know, ink on my fingers. And um, I mean, I'm a little old school. <laughs> I was about to say, regard. I think that's where we disagree because uh, my <laughs> Audible account has been my best friend for the last couple of years. I love it. But yeah, you know, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like if you look through the centuries, right, every tech, every piece of technology, whether we're talking about, you know, the printing press, you know, the electricity, telephone, radio, it goes through these moments of, of disruption, right? Mm -hmm. There are these very disruptive moments, right? When the printing press came out, everyone's like, oh my gosh, like all these pop, the propaganda that, you know, people and governments and the church is going to be able to spread is going to destroy society. And of course, yeah, sure. There's lots of lies and falsehoods and that still exists today. But the point is we figured it out, Right. Social media will not be the demise of society, but we're going through a pretty tumultuous period, right? And, you know, 10 years from now, though, hopefully we'll, we should be in a better place, right? Where people that will is, just if, sort of, if AI doesn't make us blow everyone up because uh, an AI Putin told AI Biden <laughs> to, you know, stick it where the sun don't shine or something. I'll tell you what, man, there's, there, you know, there was, um, Speaking of other podcasts, I've been a big fan of the Joe Rogan experience uh, for the last year and a half or so. And and uh, there was a podcast that he had two guys on. I can't remember what YouTube channel they they had. I'll have to I'll have to look it up. Um, but they did this this. Uh, there were these two scientists that have been studying um, this idea of how you know the the pyramids, Stonehenge, like all of these ancient places that exist that we can't figure out how they did it was from a civilization that was way more advanced than we are now that got wiped out from a cataclysmic uh, cosmic event, like a meteor striking the earth and being an earth killer and how, you know, simple things like, you know, we look at hieroglyphics and we think like, Oh, that was like the cave people like, Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like just draw. But, the other side of it is like you look at technology now. If if a meteor were to strike the Earth right now and cover the world in dust, be an Earth killer, planet killer, and space travel is possible, and there's other life out there, and they come to investigate our planet, they start digging up and they start looking up like certain fossils. Like, wait, you know, what are they going to do when they look at a computer? They're going to be like, what is this? Like, what you know, yeah. what is that? That that was a very weird like device that they used. They they all must have worshipped them because they were in every house, everywhere. Right? Like, yeah. So so all of our technology, USB drives, flash drives, computers, clouds, all gone. All of that information just gets wiped out, and we literally get back sent back to the Stone Age, where we have to learn how to draw and try and tell stories uh, by carving into stone and rock and you know all that kind of stuff. And 
it it really kind of surprised me in in how much it scared me to the idea of like there's there's a lot of speculation that has gone on with the past of where we've come from and you know why is it the dinosaur bones are here but a person's never seen a dinosaur why is it that you know yeah how is it that we can't figure out with all the technology we have we have helicopters we have you know we've talked study magnets we still can't figure out how to get a stone to the top of a pyramid uh, and make the pyramid perfectly symmetrical the way they have and all that kind of stuff right so it was just interesting. I, I didn't mean to go completely off topic here, but uh, it was just interesting. It was a very interesting episode uh, because it opened up my mind to the fact that, like, man, we're really small. We're just a speck, like speck of time. That's all we are. And yet sometimes we, we get so bogged down with what we think is important when in reality it's like, no, you know, my, my uh, possibly inconsequential. Right. It could just be. Yeah the the least consequential thing right all the social media stuff you know i mean i think back to the days of friendster and myspace and napster right and like those don't exist anymore yeah 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 like the whole top eight things like like you know it's a funny it's a funny notion to think that facebook may not be around in 10 years right Mm. and you know it's like a lot of technologies you know, they are, you know, top of the food chain one day, but they can easily be replaced by something else, like very, fairly easily and fairly quickly, which, you know, there's pros and cons about that, but it's sort of the truth, right? It's like, you know, there's, you know, Meta just came out with threads, right? Is threads going to be the Twitter killer? Of course, that's like the topic uh, and headline du jour these days, maybe, but maybe not. Um, But that that's sort of just the point, right? Nobody really knows right, how this is going to pan out. And so, you know, at a high level, like I, I, I try and tell myself not to worry about this too much, right? Like that social media is poison. And, and it, I mean, yes, it's great to keep up to date with your friends and your friends, babies and their vacations and stuff. But I'm just still really uh, an offline in person kind of individual, right? There's, I just living life for me is very much about the physical experience of of doing things with people I enjoy spending my time with, right? With my friends, my family, and um, and just fun people. And I don't know. I mean, yes, I played a lot of video games in Nintendo, you know, growing up. So I do very much understand how gaming can be a lot of fun, right? Sort of these online, right, immersive worlds and experiences. Um, so yeah, but my point is, right, we're, we're, we're going to figure it out. It's probably going to continue to be ugly, right? It's going to be a yeah. pretty brutal, uh, ugly process at certain turns, but obviously there's lots of great things that have also come out of social media, um, and connecting people, right? Literally from all around the world and, and being able to create, you know, sub communities like, right, gun culture and gun community, um, you know, online. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not all bad. There's some, you know, rainbows and butterflies. You know, well, I, th- I also think, too. I also think that we have a very interesting perspective of it because like we're, a, a lot of us are in that generation where we started off in the analog world and we got to watch the digital world become a reality. Like I remember the first computer I ever had the, inter- that had the internet, like there were only like 15 sites I could visit. Yeah. And like those sites only got updated once a month. So, you know, like nothing super special. Right. And then it just gradually got moved to, to faster and faster Internet and, and, and whatever. But, yeah, there was a time where, like, um, 
you know, my parents came home and literally locked the door and told me not to come home until the, the streetlights came on. Yeah. Like I wasn't yeah. allowed nice. in the house, yeah. <laughs> you know, wow. like nice. do that with your kid. Now the cops will be showing up saying that you're neglecting, <laughs> you know, it's like a completely different world, right? Like you wanted to know where all your friends were. All you did was you jumped on your bike, you rode around your neighborhood until you found the 12 other bikes sitting in someone's front sitting yard. In the front like, yard. Yeah. That's where they are. You yeah. Know, yeah. So there, there was, um, <laughs> there was an NPR segment a few years ago that was talking about this, um, uh, university research project. Where 40 some years ago, right, they interviewed these parents and they were uh, looking at how, how they were raising their kids. And one of the questions that they asked the parents was, how far do you, in miles, like how far away from the house do you allow your kid to go unsupervised, right? And, you know, these kids are whatever, their ages. Six to 12, something like that, right? And 40 years ago, the average answer was something like 2.74 miles, something like that, right? That these yeah. parents were comfortable, right, with their kids just being out of the house, not supervised. And so then the study, they interviewed the kids, right? The, the kids from 40 years ago that are now adults, and they asked the same questions. And that 2.74 mile number came all the way down to like, 0.12 miles, which basically equated to like two or three blocks yeah. away from home, right? And it's just, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up similar to you. It's like I I had so much freedom. My parents trusted me. I don't think that the world is any more of a dangerous place, right, than, than, than it was before kind of thing. Uh, maybe that's naive, but um, I think there's just a lot of critical social skills and coping skills, life skills, right? That like we all build as children when we don't have our parents hovering like helicopters over us trying to dictate and, and uh, control everything that, that happens. And, and I, I'm very thankful for my parents, you know, giving me that kind of freedom, right? The freedom for me to make mistakes, to really mess up, right? And and yeah. figure it out, right? Like I didn't have their protection, you know, when certain when I got myself into certain messes. It's like I've got to negotiate this either on my own or with my friends, and we're gonna we're gonna figure it out. But that's like these building blocks of resilience, of teamwork, of learning how to communicate. Literally, learning street smarts, right? And mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, I mean, call me old school, but I think we need a little bit more of that, not just with kids, but also. <laughs> Well. Common sense is not nearly as common as it used to be. Yeah, it's becoming more like uncommon sense. Yeah, yeah. To have common sense makes you the um, you're you're the oddball. Yeah. Like yeah. what? What do you what do you mean? Of course, naturally, it's that seemed like a perfect idea to go ahead and just you know leave my child at home while I went and got drunk for four hours. Why? What was what was wrong with that? You're like, okay, yeah, that, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> Bright Insight was the YouTube channel. That was that was uh, what I was searching here. Bright Insight is the YouTube, and and they've got these whole like, it's mad scary that they they show these um, examples that are like a lot. You can go and find these examples just laying out in the wilderness at some of these recreation or uh, historical sites, where you look at what they accomplished with the tools they were supposed to have. With us thinking that they were supposed to be using hammers and chisels, um, and you're like. Oh, uh, yeah. How did they do that? There, yeah, there's no way they could have done that with it. But now, before we get to, 
a, a little bit too far off of context here. There is something that I, I we we did talk about at NRA, um, and and I wanted you be, to to have a moment to be able to bring it into light, and that is the um, the Asian Pacific American Gun Owners Association. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that organization, kind of what what you do with them or what what, you know, that organization organization does. Um, you know, what are they trying to highlight? And, uh, you know, what, what just tell us a little bit more about that. organization. Yeah, absolutely. So APA GOA is a pro-gun uh, Asian-American focused organization that um, one of the co-founders and I'm um, on the board for the, uh, for the org. And, you know, the birth of APOGOA came out of the pandemic when we started seeing this really dramatic increase in racist attacks against Asian Americans. And, you know, for me, you know, I, I'm half Chinese and half Japanese, but I've never, I've just never really kind of made being Asian American a thing. It's like, well, I don't know. I was born this way. Uh, there's really nothing notable about it. it that sort of was my old sort of perspective, right? That talking about my, my Asian American background wasn't useful or necessary, but the pandemic really changed how I think about being Asian American. And, you know, here in San Francisco, right, we were having, uh, and we still have, you know, a number of really deadly attacks against Asian Americans, right? Here in one of the most progressive, you know, diverse cities, in the world, you think that, oh, you know, you wouldn't have to worry about being Asian American, but right, there are all these attacks happening and there are a lot of scared people, right? scared Asian Americans who are literally being targeted you know, for, because of the color of their skin. And so that was very unsettling for me. Like I've experienced racism before, but nothing, nothing extreme, just whatever, you know, racial the occasional name calling. Yeah, like whatever. Yeah. Me, right? me too like, in high school. Yeah, it, it was like, yeah. oh, you want to call me a chink or a gook? It's like, okay, yeah. Do you feel better about yourself? Because I'm late yeah, for class now. It's, so it's, it's and annoying. I always just let it rub off, like blow off, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, right, it's it's, it's one thing to, 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 you know, deal with name calling. It's a whole other thing, right, if we're talking about physical violence, right? You know, criminals assaulting Asian Americans, you know, killing right, a number of Asian Americans and these racist attacks. And, you know, the, the, the constant is almost like a daily onslaught, right, of negative, you know, news, like attacks against uh, Asian Americans. And so I remember sitting there thinking to myself, like, what can I do, right? What is my place in this situation where I can be helpful? You know, given, right, I'm a top shot champion, right, I'm the you know, firearm safety ambassador in the industry, right? I have I have my platform, but beyond that, it's like, you know, I, I'm just a concerned community member, right, that wants to help do as much good as I can and, and try and not just help people feel safe, right, but actually make them safe. And, right, promoting safe, responsible firearms ownership and training, right, is, is clearly, um, you know, a very logical option for me. And so the formation of APA GOA happened a little over two years ago. Um, it's been very satisfying for me to see Asian Americans from all across the country, you know, joining APA GOA and meeting other Asian Americans who, you know, they, they didn't realize, hey, there's actually a lot of Asian Americans who own guns, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a very um, comforting thing, right, for, for a lot of individuals. Um, 
you know, I'll say personally for myself, like I, I, I just generally don't look at things through, through the racial lens. Like, I don't know. I have lots of friends from, I don't know, all different types of, you know, races and ethnicities. Um, but I think the reality is this, right? I was a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I was a little skeptical, I think, as maybe the right word at first around creating a race based gun, you know, organization. Um, because I think of, again, my own sort of personal experience of like, I don't usually make a big deal right out of my, my, my race or ethnicity. But the reality is that a lot of people do, right? A lot of people do, right? That their race is one of their key identities. And so, you know, I, I, I have a personal philosophy of, meeting people where they are, right? Whatever that means in the given situation, right? If, if, if we're talking about gun control and gun rights, I need to meet someone where they are, right? If, if they've never shot a gun before, I can't like start talking about, you know, assault weapons bans and magazine capacity restrictions. Like it's probably going to be too much for them, right? If they've never even shot a gun, they don't have any context, right? For, for what this is, or if they've had a negative experience with firearms, right? It's like, we need to un understand and respect, right? Where people are coming from. And so with APA GOA, like I've just seen how satisfying and how fulfilling it's been for a lot of a APA GOA members, right? To meet other like-minded individuals, right? Who are pro-gun, who are all about safety, education, and community, right? And, and mm -hmm. seeing, these right, communities, right, build within the gun community, right? Yeah. Um, again, meeting people where they are. I was like, look, I don't, I don't, I don't hang out with people based on race, but look, the reality is, lots of people do, and that's been a common theme throughout all of mankind, right? Like, there's just lots of people who want to hang out with people who look like them, talk like them, sharing all the cultural, you know, connective tissue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, well, and even so, the, even people that will emulate it, like they'll they'll look at a group of people and be like, "Oh, that's that's the popular group over there. What all do they like to do?" Now mm -hmm. all of a sudden, oh yeah, I like that too, and they start to emulate it. So and and you know, not to say that it's always fake because sometimes you you try something that you never wouldn't. Like for me, hunting never never knew I liked hunting until I got out and I started hunting, and all of a sudden I was like, "Oh my god, I'm a hunter! I didn't realize nice. I was a yeah. hunter." Jesus Christ, you know, but. <laughs> No, and, and you know, I, I'll agree to that. And see, I'm in the same boat as you in the fact that, like, growing up, even even to have people make those racist comments to me, like, a lot of the times I was like, dude, we're both 14. You don't even know what a chink or a gook really is. You you just know that it's supposed to try and hurt my feelings. But in reality, like, I would look at him and be like, dude, I was born in Las Vegas. Okay, like, yeah, I look Asian, but I'm American. Like I was born and raised here. Yeah. It's not like I'm a, a transplant or anything like that. And it always, it just made me giggle because I just always, my mindset was always like, yeah, my, my historical background, my ancestry is that of Korean, but I, I'm an American. I'm not Korean. I can go to Korea. I can enjoy Korean. I love the culture. Like I don't get me wrong. I, man, I miss some good Korean food. They unfortunately they the just best. they just don't have good Korean food here in Chillicothe, Missouri, home of sliced bread. Right? <laughs> so that's the thing I miss in Vegas. But like and my grandma and my mom were there too, and they cooked like, you know, at home Korean cooking oh, and amazing. stuff. So so I I love my heritage, but at the same time, I also don't necessarily let it like it's not what I base my entire existence on because again, 
I'm an American here. There are things that I like. There are things I don't like. And that's just who I am. It's not necessarily like, well, in Korea, it's bad luck to like this. So that's why we don't like it in the house. I'm just kind of like, eh, no, I like it. You know, yeah. <laughs> if, they were, if they were like, bourbon is bad luck, I'd be like, well, then I'm going to get myself a black cat so I can cross that bitch every day, too, because I ain't giving up bourbon, right? So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think... I think a couple of things. Yeah, the the it was scary seeing a a lot of the flare up for people openly, you know, uh, being racist towards Asians, um, <laughs> and I yeah. I always joked about it, but like I knew it was serious. But at the same time, I was like, man, these people really want to be pissed off. We're gonna turn all their cell phones off. We're gonna <laughs> bomb all their TVs. Like we're gonna you know hit it with malware and all that kind of stuff. And then there's like four to one of us. Like, we'll just take over the earth if we really wanted to, right? Keep pissing <laughs> us off kind of thing. I, was, I always joked about that. But um, no, yeah, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with having a, an organization that is uh, based on pride for your culture as long as it's not like, a, you know, it, it's one thing to have a, a culture where it's about connecting with people on that level of the historical value and importance and sharing cultures and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's not to like attack the other people. Yeah, exactly. It's not, yeah. It's not like it, this is our tribe. You're your tribe. Right. And if you get too close to us, then we're going to have to go to war. It's just, it's kind of more of that, con that finding connection amongst like, sometimes you have to find a little connection before you can make the big connection. Yeah, exactly. So if, so if something like race or, or your ethnic heritage and stuff is what gets you to that, that world where you're like, Oh my God, I didn't realize there's so many people that are, we, this is where we started, but Oh my gosh, we just have so much more in common other than yeah, just the fact bingo. that we're Asian. Yeah. And you know, there's just been so many, you know, first time gun owners and APA GOA that, you know, that, that's their gateway, right, into the mm -hmm. gun community, right? And, and to this point, well, you know, whether they stay within sort of, you know, Asian American circles or whether they expand, right, to sort of the, the broader, wider gun community, I mean, it's sort of here nor there for me. It, it's, again, back to making sure that, one, you know, I want more Asian Americans to understand and at least respect the Second Amendment, right? And, mm -hmm. and so much of that comes to just – it's just education, right? It's about dispelling – ignorance and, and myths, dispelling myths. Um, you know, one thing that's been really fascinating to see with APA GOA is the number of first-time gun owners who are either first or second generation immigrants, right, to this country. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a game changer, right? It's it's an absolute game changer. Right? You have, you know, naturalized citizens or, you know, uh, you know born here and they pick up a gun for the first time and they become a gun owner, and that is a generational shift, right, happening right there, right? And back to the hunting thing, right? Like my – so my father was the first-generation gun owner, right, in, in my family, but he didn't hunt. Now, I'm a hunter, right? And so, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have kids, but if I do have kids, like we're going to go hunting, right? Mm. We're definitely going hunting. And I have nephews and nieces, and I would love to take them hunting, right? So whether it's like my own kids – or my other, you know, new, you know, younger generations in my family, right? This is how family traditions start, right? They they start with somebody in your family doing a thing, and with gun mm -hmm. ownership, right? Unless you have somebody, usually, right? It's a family member, right? That's going to introduce you to a hobby, an activity, or a culture, or a way of life. And so, for more Asian Americans, I'm I'm seeing APA GOA, right, being a conduit, right? We are 
we're opening up and dispelling these myths, right? That guns are bad and guns are evil, um, right? And you see lots of responsible Asian Americans, right? Owning guns and, um, well, now let me say this. One thing that is very unique and distinctive about an Asian gun group is the language barrier, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I used to come from a place where, okay, look, if you live in our country, you should speak English. And that was very much an absolutist uh, attitude that I, that I used to have. But, you know, the pandemic, like, really changed my perspective when it comes to our constitutional rights, especially the Second Amendment. Should a language barrier prevent somebody from defending themselves with a firearm? Right? Should English be a requirement to own a gun in our country? And, and for me, the answer has to be no. Right? That the, the Constitution, right, shouldn't require you to speak English, right, to exercise your freedom of religion, right, freedom of speech, your Second Amendment rights. You know, you, you know, it, it just goes on and on and on. So, um, APA GOA has been wonderful because there's a we have a pretty notable Chinese um, population within APA GOA. And Chinese language firearm instruction has been a, a, a pretty strong kind of request um, and need, which I think is, um, you know, the NSSF, which is the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the firearms industry trade group. The NSSF has a good relationship with APA GOA, and we're educating the industry right, on some of these opportunities, right, that may not have been seriously considered before, such as, can we train more firearms instructors who speak, you know, Mandarin and Cantonese, but train them, right, in, 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 you know, as firearms instructors so they can actually go train other, you know, um, either native Chinese speakers or uh, if their English proficiency as an, isn't at, you know, an, an, a near native level uh, or at least at a level where they can safely learn, right, how to, how to shoot a gun. Hey, right. what, what does it matter if they're, if they're being trained in Chinese or in Spanish or in Japanese or Korean or whatever language, right? The Second Amendment is for everybody, right? And in order for us to fully believe that and to execute that vision, right, that civil rights, right, are for everyone, regardless of what language you speak, you know, we have to meet, again, meet people where they are, right? Just because you may not speak English proficiently, then you know what? The firearms community and industry we need to come to them, right, and 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 train more firearms instructors in uh, foreign languages, right, so we can expand gun culture, right, and 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 make this a truly big tent kind of community and culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know what, uh, you you bring up a good point there because I I was very much like you too, like man, we're in America. Why? What? What is this? Why are you speaking Spanish? Like you know, was kind of my mindset. But what I realized was that a lot of the times. That's going to work itself out amongst that family because a kid that is brought up in the U.S. will learn English. Yeah. So it's not like that family, that family line is going to forever only know how to speak Spanish and English will never become a language. Grandpa's just 80 years old. He lived his entire life speaking Spanish and he doesn't feel like learning how to speak English. He doesn't care if you don't understand him, which is a yeah. feeling I, as I get older, I totally understand. Like, I don't care if you like me or not, you know, it's like, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, so to understand, to have the patience. And, and when I did EMS, that was another big thing for me. Cause like, you know, in Vegas, uh, 
there were people from all over the world. The first time I had a patient tell me and I said, I said, okay, sir, so about how tall are you? And they were like, oh, you know, like, um, 217 centimeters. And I was like, Oh, you're like, okay, how many, how many feet is that? Like, you know, and then I said, and, and how much do you weigh? Like I, after I, after I did the calculation, I was like, Oh man, I'm so glad that's over. I go, okay. And how much do you weigh? He goes about 12 stones. And I was like, and, and how much does each stone weigh <laughs> in pounds, please? Yeah. You know, but like, then you had, you, I had conversations with people or, or having to interact with patients that were from France, that were from Germany, that were from, you know, all these, and that's all they spoke. So, you know, it's hard to try and mime to someone like, are you having chest pain or breathing problems? Like, you know, how do you mime that to someone and then have them understand what you're talking about instead of just looking like some guy trying to act like a mime. So no, you, yeah, I never even considered that, that, uh, yeah, something as simple as, as just communicating, um, safety things to people when they don't understand can be very, very difficult. And yeah. And when you're, when you're talking about something that is as complex as a firearm, because it's not typically, you know, like we all know, you know, keep the booger hook off the bang switch and the gun won't go off kind yeah. of thing typically, but the, the first thing most people that are older that have watched movies and TV shows, the first thing they want to do is put their finger on the trigger because that's what the media that's what has taught seen. them. That's, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? Like even a kid understands the idea of put a magazine inside a gun, point it and, sh- and shoot kind of thing, right? They don't fully understand what happens. That, they just know that this is what I'm supposed to do because this is a gun kind of thing. And when you, when you talk about education, see, I think that's also another thing that we need to focus on more for the gun culture to become a little bit more normalized is the idea. Like, so my daughter, uh, my older daughter now is, is turning 16 this year. Right. So obviously I, I took her out. I think the first time we let her, I let her shoot a gun was maybe she was five or six years old and she's come with me to the gun range all the time. And, and anytime she wanted to shoot, I told her, I was like, if you ever want to see your gun, shoot your gun, all you have to do is ask me, I'll drop what I'm doing. We'll go to the range right then and there. Nice. And you can shoot it until you you're tired. Right. And, you know, and and she's kind of brought up more in a liberal household on her mom's side, very liberal ideas and all that kind of stuff. So she's kind of a little bit more liberal um, versus me being a little bit more on the conservative side. But she has no desire to take gun rights away because she sees a safe full of guns. She's been taught about guns. She understands that a gun can't go off until someone picks it up and physically manipulates it to go off and even then they have control of where it goes off i've fired hundreds of thousands of rounds and none of them have found a human body yet they've always been into targets steel berms you know whatever so Mm -hmm. she understands that and i think when you start teaching these kids about and and it's one thing to to tell like how many times have you told a kid something and they went and did it anyway? Yeah, of right? course. So clearly just talk, just talking to your kids about firearm safety, while it's a good thing, it, talking to them is still going to eventually go one, out in one ear, out the next. Or maybe they just like they're listening to you, but they don't fully understand. It's, it's another thing to completely let them experience it and then f- understand what the consequences of their actions are. And that, again, is the education portion, right? Like how many – how many kids would not get accidentally shot if they were taught the four firearm safety rules because they understand that this is a tool. This is a, you know, a, a saw can cut your hand off. That doesn't, yeah. that, that means my kid is not allowed to go play around a saw until they understand what the saw is meant for and how to safely use it. Right. Um, so for me, I think like you said, like trying to get into more junior worlds, but I think it needs to almost start 
to like, you know, like, yeah, middle school, high, high school is where they need to start. Like I, in my high school, we had an ROTC program and the ROTC program had an air rifle program and I did the air rifle team. So while it's an air rifle, we still obviously followed the safety protocols. We wore eye protection. We didn't point the rifles at anything that we didn't intend to shoot. We set up back berms. We always knew what was yeah, behind. Nice. We used to we used to put up warning signs saying, you know, don't enter this area because this is a live fire area kind of thing from right now, right? So I think by by normalizing the firearms world and making it more uh accessible and then more education at the kid level and the experience at the kid level too, I think would be a huge turning factor because getting the youth more involved in firearms and the education and the, the knowledge and the experience is I think going to be what can really, really help our fight against the second amendment. Absolutely. The, that whole saying of like, um, what strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times, and bad times create strong men kind of thing. And, and it's unfortunate because right now we kind of seem in that area where we've had good times for a while and we've created a, a very, very weak generation, you know. Um, not that I, you know, I, I get it. I was a teenager. I remember that I used to want to play video games and but even, see, even then, again, that's another generational gap because, like us, like when video game consoles first came out, if you wanted to play a video game with a friend, your friend had to physically come over and plug a controller in with you, and then you could sit there. And even then, you were very careful about the shit talking because yeah. he could literally turn around and punch you or throw yeah. the controller at you or something. Like, <laughs> so you know, there, there there was still that level of respect versus now it could be, you know, like uh, all the funny, funny videos you can find on YouTube of little like 14 year old boys telling someone that, you know, their mom, you know, the person they're talking to like, Oh, well, your mom's in my room right now. And you're just like, well, you wouldn't say that to anyone's face. No. And yet here you are just saying it, you know, do a big old TV screen to someone that you don't know. But, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I think getting kids involved, um, would, would change the mindset and get them to understand that, uh, um, like I said, it's, it's a tool and every, every tool can be used for good or bad depending on who who picks it up right so yeah and you know getting kids involved um you know especially with with firearms you know often it's i mean right it's gonna have to usually you know come from an adult i mean right Mm -hmm. kids can want to do right they can want to do a lot of things but especially if you're young i mean i learned how to shoot at the age of six as well and like it was something that i had asked my dad to do and yeah and he took me but right, what if the kid right? If what if a kid right doesn't have anybody in their family right that owns a gun right? Like that's where you know trying to create avenues and venues right for for kids uh, and adults right of all ages right to, to to come and learn how to shoot. You know, APAGOA has been one of the many groups right that are out there where you know we have um, you know fun you know shooting events. You know, we had an event about a year ago here in the Bay Area, and um, yeah, you know, we had we had people all ages, right, come. Um, and clearly, right, there's other you know shooting events where right? there's a lot of young kids, right, who come to learn how to shoot. It's their first time. You know, I remember um, I was in Southern California at this event, and um, you know, anybody who wanted to come and just like you know shoot a little bit with me, it was like a celebrity thing. And this this little kid, he must have been like four. Um, you know, I mostly held the gun, you know, for him, but you know, it was a pistol and, you know, basically he, he pulled the trigger, right. I'm, I'm, I was basically holding the gun for him, but he loved it, right. That was 
such a positive experience for him and his parents were, were thrilled too. And, um, and like, that's the kind of, you know, positive memories though, that we, we can all create with people, right. Whether you're, you're really young, you know, I was, um, uh, teaching some people, some of my personal friends how to shoot about a month ago and they were really nervous and really anxious because, right. I mean, yeah, let's, let's be honest, right. Shooting a gun for the first time can be pr a pretty nerve wracking experience and it should be because if you mess this up, you can hurt yourself or others and you don't want to be down. You just don't want that to happen. But, um, my friends loved it. Like, you know, and they're, they're decently liberal. Um, you know, they're not like anti-gun or anything, but they, they had a great time. Right. And that ex mm -hmm. that positive experience for them. Um, you know, I, I hope goes a long way, right. For, uh, for, for gun owners and, and for gun rights in this country, because right there, there there's no shortage of anti-gun legislation, right. That is coming down at all levels, right. The federal, at the federal level, you know, state level, and you know, local level too, and so ultimately, it comes down to us voting, right, for um, you know, voting for gun rights, voting for politicians who are pro gun. So, um, for me, this is a grat. I have a, a very grassroots attitude and approach to this, right, to, to gun rights, which is I need to take individual people. <laughs> Right. Sometimes it's one person. Sometimes it's one person. I take one person in the range to make a difference. And that's something that everybody can do. I don't care who you are. You don't need to be top shot anything. You can just be, hey, like you don't even need to be a gun owner. Right. You can go to the range. Lots of ranges rent guns. Right. Go to the range, rent a gun or two with a friend and share that experience. I right? teach someone, teach someone new. And that's that's the way that we're going to win the fight. And so. And I will I will add one more suggestion. If you're not a gun owner and you want to try to go shoot a gun, um, absolutely go to a range that has a rental program so you can rent a firearm. And then tell the person behind the counter that you've never shot a gun before and you could really use a little bit of help. Yeah. Because working at a gun store when I did, man, it was it was scary how many times someone would go out and try and just figure it out and do so many mm -hmm. things wrong and unsafe that like yeah. it would bring me from around the counter to go out to the range and be like, Hey, you're, you keep pointing the gun back at the glass or whatever. Like, you know, then they would tell me like, well, I've never shot before. Like, <laughs> okay, makes sense. Now let me, yeah. let me help you out here because yeah. what, yes, I, I want to explain what you did and why we don't want to do that. So again, it was that education thing. So do not let, the the fear of never doing it before stop you from ever doing it because how will you know unless you try yeah you know i try and tell my daughter that all the time whenever i put some new food in front of her i'm like hey you can't you can't tell me no until you've actually had a bite because for all you know this could be the best thing in the world does she roll her eyes at you though does she roll her eyes or does she uh does she does she try new things with gusto uh not no, no, but that doesn't stop me from trying, right? Like I said, I, I can keep talking it. it. It goes in one ear and out the next, but um, it's not going to stop me from trying. She'll but appreciate she, it. I will she's say older. she's a, yeah, exactly. Like that's my mindset too. Like it's it's one thing to you know uh, the, the saying is always by the time you realize your parents were right, you normally have a kid telling you that you're wrong. Um, 
and that's where I'm at. Like my parents were always pushing me to try new things, experience new things. And, you know, no matter how stubborn I was, I wanted peanut butter and jelly. No, I don't care about this tiramisu. That looks weird. Why is there bread in the middle of that pudding stuff? Like I don't want, and now tiramisu is my favorite, one of my favorite desserts <laughs> that I could just smash an entire thing up by myself. Well, that's know? a fun fact. Oh, dude. For oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, let me put this way. I love desserts. Like I, my, <laughs> when I was a kid, it was like, okay, I'm gonna have one plate of salad. I'm gonna have one plate of food and four plates of desserts. That's what I, when I went to the buffets in Vegas. Right. So. Right. Well, Chris, I know you got some stuff that you got to take care of real quick. Uh, I always kind of end my, my shows with some fast fire questions and then I'll give you a moment to kind of, kind of chat about whatever it is that you need to do. But cool. um, Hit me with it. the first, first question I got for you is candy corn, yummy or what the fuck? what the fuck <laughs> thank you yes i don't know who's buying it but stop 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 buying candy corn it's a stop buying candy corn it is gross okay i don't care how many times you think it's it, no it's gross okay um friends or the office the office oh we used to be friends too oh <laughs> no i i love both but friends is what 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 it was my favorite growing up because there, there was always a, uh, there was always an episode for anything that you were going through in life, you know, and, and friends just was there for you. So, uh, would you rather owe money or owe a favor? Oh, hmm, this is a good one. Um, I'd rather owe money. I'd rather owe money because it's a very specific thing that I owe, right? But the favor could just be like anything. And what's the scope of the favor? Is it, is it, um, uh, sort of, uh, symmetrical with whatever debt, you know, that created the favor in the first place kind of thing. So yeah, I'd rather owe money. Or is someone going to walk in your house and be like, I need you to come with me. You can't ask me where we're going. We're going to hurt people. And you can't ever ask me, or you can't ever tell anyone about it again. Okay. Are we taking your car or mine? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Chinese or Hawaiian takeout? Chinese. I love Hawaiian food. I love Hawaiian food so much, but um, Hawaiian food's range is much more narrow than Chinese food, right? Yeah, that is true. There's just so much. and, and, And even here in San Francisco, we have some Hawaiian restaurants, but there's way more Chinese restaurants. So I can get Chinese food in more hours of the day versus Hawaiian food. So it's like, yeah. Loco Moco. Loco Moco is one of my favorite yes. Hawaiian dishes. Oof. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. That or, or uh, chicken katsu. Oh, oh gosh. gosh. Oh, yeah. Chicken katsu. And some I'm, I'm missing salad. Asian food so much here in Chillicothe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and the last question is, uh, would you rather be a Star Wars Jedi or a Harry Potter wizard? Jedi. Je- Star Wars Jedi. Yeah. What is it about the Jedi that beats the um, wizard for you? I mean, it's just a generational thing. Like, I mean, okay, look, magic is awesome. And yes, like being a magician would be amazing. But I don't know, Harry Potter is really childish and juvenile to me because I was just older. I was just older when Harry Potter came out, right? And mm. and, and seeing Star Wars as a youngster, I was like, oh, okay, like, you know, like, hey, being a Jedi – uh, just be incredible because also yeah, whatever, it's, yeah. um, I don't know it's just more real in some regards like magic I love magic but magic's not real right but well, well but being a Jedi is not real either 
What are you talking about? Of course, being a Jedi. Like, I've seen David Blaine make quarters disappear, but I have yet to see a laser sword. I thought we were supposed that, to be carving turkeys with those by now. Laser swords are becoming more of a thing, like like real like plasma laser swords. Yeah, it's wild. It's like, oof, that's that's some, that's some cool stuff. Dude, can you imagine the ER trips that are going to take place as soon as those become commercially available? So oh, many man. people are going to accidentally cut limbs off, and they're already they're cauterized, ca- so there's nothing Yeah, to do exactly. That's what I was going to say. They're already cauterized, so it's like, well, maybe we can <laughs> reattach the thing, but... <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't have been, you know... <laughs> but... No, I see, and, and again, I'm I'm kind of in that that world where, like, I didn't I didn't see Star Wars when it was coming out, but I did see Star Wars at a young age, and then pretty much, like... A couple years after that was when Harry Potter started coming out, and I kind of fell in with that. Man, you know, if I had to pick, though, I feel like a Star Wars Jedi would be would be the the way to go because with the Harry Potter world, like if you lose your wand, you're kind of a little screwed. You're all of a sudden very <laughs> limited to what you can do. Versus a Jedi, like you lose your lightsaber, you can still move things, you can still push things, you can still, you know. Yeah, and also, but for me, like with Jedi's, there's a stronger code, right? And and like honor. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, Harry Potter, of course, sort of like you know, only use magic for good. But it's like, well, you know, like, but what, what what does good really mean? It, it seems very flimsy in the Harry Potter world. Um, I mean, well, and they didn't always actually. There were a lot of people that were very, very loosey goosey with their magic mm-hmm. that did things that were um, questionable. <laughs> You know, but uh, Jedi. No, I I, I would Jedi agree with you. I think Jedi's the way to go. Yeah. So, <laughs> right on. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Uh, I'm, this 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 last part is basically open floor for you. If there are any sponsors you want to thank, any people, family members, or or organizations that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you want to kind of shine some light on, the floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, if anybody is interested in learning more about the Asian Pacific American Gun Owners Association, which is a mouthful, also known as APAGOA, check out APAGOA.org. You don't have to be Asian American to join APAGOA. We have you know, lots of spouses that are not Asian, married to you know Asian significant others. We have a lot of you know allies uh, as well. So, you know, APAGOA is uh, it's, it's it's for everybody. Um, so yeah, check us out on uh, APAGOA.org. Uh, I'm available at TopShotChris.com and on a number of social media uh, you know, platforms at TopShotChris. And then for any new shooters who are listening to this uh, to this podcast, if you're interested in a handful of uh, free instructional videos. For the new shooter, whether it's pistol, rifle, or shotgun, uh, my YouTube channel, in conjunction with the National Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, we have um, got about 40 uh, different videos that are all shorter format, you know, two to five minute videos talking everything about, you know, proper pistol grip to, you know, stance, you know, what is caliber, you know, what is, what, what does somebody mean when they say 22 or nine millimeter? Like, well, why, why are there two different measurement systems in caliber? There's um, a whole bunch of great free content. Uh, link is nssf.it slash Top Chris. And so again, you know, a bunch of free videos uh, for the beginner shooter. And that's to complement my book, Shoot to Win. Hang on, let me grab a copy here. This is my book, Shoot <laughs> to Win. 
available. Look at that on, young gun. Yeah, look at that young look gun. At, back when he was fresh off his win. Like, look at this dude. Look at that guy. <laughs> yeah, Shoot to Win is uh, again a, a book for the new shooter. But also, you know, even if you have some experience, it's always great to go back to the fundamentals. You know, every every great athlete, every great shooter. If you if we're having some some accuracy issues, right? Oftentimes, it's about going back to the fundamentals. And so Shoot to Win teaches those those core fundamentals of firearm safety and also marksmanship. So check out Shoot to Win if um, yeah if you're looking for a great gift or if you're just looking to to learn how to shoot or or to sharpen your skills. Perfect. Well, there you go again, Chris Chang. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, brother. Um, for sure. God, what what is the next thing? We'll probably see each other at Shot Show then, right? I feel like Shot. That's yeah, gonna be the next one that we'll probably see. That'll be, All right, that'll well, probably be it. We'll probably try and plan something for SHOT Show. Uh, again, thank you so much for coming on and, and uh, chatting with me. I really do appreciate your time and uh, and the good information and the couple laughs we had thinking that Indeed. Jedi are real. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thanks so uh, much for having me, John. <laughs> had a great time chatting with you. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of Open Action with me, John McLean, brought to you by Armscore and Rock Island Armory. Uh, make sure you stay tuned, follow along, subscribe, because I got some more awesome episodes coming out. Uh, with that being said, though, we'll see you later.